Please open your Bibles to Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Good morning. It is great to see you here this morning, always is, and we are so thankful for your presence and the opportunity that we have been afforded to be here this morning to worship and praise our God. Certainly, he is worthy. If you're there in Romans 12, stay there. That will be where our sermon comes from this morning. The title of our sermon is just as we heard read, Live at Peace with All Men, and we'll talk specifically about what's said in verse number 18. We've been talking about sanctification over the last several sermons. Uh, the elders, I think, uh, a few weeks ago made an announcement that that's kind of a focus, and we want to talk about spiritual growth and development and doing that personally and being responsible to that end. And so we want to keep exhorting to that end. And so this sermon this morning is one of those sermons that would fall in the realm of sanctification. This is about us as God's people living holy lives and doing the things that God uh, expects and requires of us. To appreciate the sermon and the content that's there in verse number 18, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. I need you to imagine for just a moment that you're a weightlifter. You've been working out, you've been training your body through strengthening, and at some point you reach a point where you say, I want to do my max lift. Now, Imagine and pick a number. I don't know what that is. Obviously, it'll be different for us all. But can you pick a number in your mind that you could bench press one time? I'll give you a second to get that number. <laughs> I'll just tell you in advance, the bar alone typically is 45 pounds. Now, by max lift, I need you to understand what that means. This is not reps. So if you can pick your number and then you can push it off and back down several times, that's not your max lift. We don't want that one. So if you need to increase your number, increase your number. Here's the lift. When you have, and you're going to need a spotter for this one. That's what's involved in a max lift. For those who lift, is that right? Is that correct? For those who lift, you need a spotter for this one. Why? Because you're actually not sure. You're not sure you're going to be able to do it. That's what's involved in a max lift. Now, this verse is a max lift. So to appreciate that, please go through your mind. Grab the bar. There you are underneath, your, your chest and body exposed. Once you lift this bar, you pretty much know, I have one shot to get this off of my chest and off my face and off away from my body. One shot. And this is the lift that even getting it off the bar is a little tough. This is that lift. And when you set it over you now, you know this has got to come down one time and get up off of me. And so all of your effort is going into this lift. Are you there? Yes? If you've ever done this, you know what I'm talking about. You push it off, and your spotter says, you got it and your arms are already shaking, and you come down, and now we got to go up, and every fiber of your being is firing, and typically, if this is your max lift, you get about halfway, and everything starts saying, we got a decision to make here. <laughs> Whew. 
By now, your spotter has leaned over and he's whispering to you, you got it, you got it. His hands are under the bar just in case. And you keep pressing. That's this verse. If that doesn't do it for you, maybe you weren't a weightlifter. I need you now to go to the combine. You know the NFL combine. They do a 40-yard dash there. Have you ever run as fast as you can possibly run? I don't mean you jog leisurely. I mean you feel like if I take another step, I will, everything will come out. I ran so hard, all I can do is lay here right now and just fall out. Have you ever run to appreciate the verse, you need to run as hard as you can? Or if running is not your forte, do you swim? We're going down the length of an Olympic-sized pool and back as fast as you can possibly swim. What happens a lot of times when people read the Bible is they don't max out. They don't run as fast as they can. They don't run as hard as they can. They don't swim as fast as they can. They never max out. You know what God is asking, especially in this verse? He's asking you to max out. How do you know that, Eric? Did you read the verse? Let's read it. Romans chapter 12, verse number 18. As much as lies within you, isn't that a max? If it's as much, there's none left. If it's as much, so far as depends on you, there's nothing left there because I've gone as far as I can possibly go. This is as much as it depends on me. This is so far as I can go. This is my max. What's being said in this verse is max out in the pursuit of peace. Paul is talking about peace and its pursuit. And he is saying, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. The context of Romans chapter 12 is actually Romans 1 through 11, the chapters 1 through 11. Paul has been building a case and making a case and appealing to the body there at Rome as well as those Jews that that justification is by faith. It's by God's grace. We did nothing. God is good. And by faith, not by law and works, we must trust God. We must rely on him. We must trust him and do what he says. It's by faith. We reach Romans chapter 12, and Paul is really winding the book up. He's now talking about how we live out sanctification, how we live out the case he's been building because of what God has done in Christ and because of who we are as God's children. This is how we're called to live. You remember the beginning of this chapter. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he continues all the way through this chapter, beginning to get very practical. He reaches this section and this verse, and he says, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. Scripture often tells us what to do, and then it tells us how to do it. That's the nature of sanctification. You get this instruction, and you get, here's what you need to do, and here's how you do it. 
Our actions are the results of our thoughts. We think and then we act. And so if you have been prone in your life to say, I don't know what I was thinking, please stop that and get much more engaged in your thought processes. Because what you're doing is the result of your thoughts. And then when somebody calls you out on what you did, you might be saying, well, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, you do. No, what you were thinking was exactly what you did. And you and I then will put our words to either reveal our thoughts or to explain and defend our thoughts and our deeds. Sometimes we'll get called out and somebody will say, well, look what you did. You say, well, listen, I know why you did it. You did it because you say, well, listen, let me take the words and tell you what I was thinking when I did that. That's what our words do. This verse is about action. And since it's about action, that means it's about our hearts. There is what lies within you. That would be inside of your heart. Your heart, my heart, every human heart is comprised of four parts. One part is our intellect. If you could imagine your heart having a meeting, there would be four guests to the meeting before we make decisions and act out of our hearts. The first one would be intellect. Our intellect would show up for the meeting, and he would be the one, she would be the one, processing the information. Nobody. Okay. The information would come in, and the intellect would take the information and say, here's what we think. Here's what I'm thinking. The emotion would step forward then and say, hey, if you're thinking that, here's how I'm going to feel. I'm going to make us feel what you think. And so if you think that, I'm going to feel this, and we'll be in harmony. And then our will will come in, and our will will say, well, here's what we're going to do. You thought it. I understand that. We heard you. We got your thoughts. Thanks for sharing. You felt it. I see that y'all are in agreement. Okay, everybody's good. We're going to do this then. We're going to do what we think and what we feel. Our conscience, the fourth member, will come along and say, is everybody good here? Yes. Intellect will say, here's what I'm thinking. Emotion will say, here's what I'm feeling. And the will will say, we're going to do what we think and what we feel. And the conscience will say, I'll rubber stamp that and we won't have any problems. Let's go forward. Sometimes, however, not, they're not all in agreement. Sometimes you have a thought about what you should do. Or sometimes feelings take over the thinking. And sometimes feeling gets a hold of the thing and feeling says, I just feel this. And intellect is trying to say, but that's not what we think. No, but I feel this. No, but that's not what's true. No, but I feel this. And if feeling gets the operation of the thing, sometimes you can get in all sorts of trouble. Or the will can override the thinking and the feeling. You can think a particular thing. You can feel a particular thing. I should do this. I know this is right. And the will will say, but I'm not doing it. I need to say I'm sorry. I know that person is in the next room. You're standing over here. A wall separates, and you're having a conversation with all of those people in there. And they're not in agreement. And the intellect is trying. We should say we're sorry. Yeah, but I don't feel like I'm sorry. In fact, they made me real mad. I said what I said because I meant what I said. Yeah, but you were wrong about that. The intellect said, yeah, but I felt that way. And the last time somebody apologized, it was me. And the will is saying, we should go apologize. And then somebody says, nope, we're not going to, though. 
Sometimes you go into that same room, look at that person, and just keep on walking. <laughs> Walk right into the kitchen, get you some water, and sometimes when you're really, you know, you're not just, you're not thinking right, you're not doing right, you just might come in there and say, hmm, nice day, isn't it? You're just going to ease back into a conversation, but what you're not going to do is apologize. Everybody has to be in agreement. This verse involves our heart, and you and I need to understand that. God did not make us robots. God didn't make us without thinking. Every time we speak, we do, we, we think from our heart. You can see it in Scripture. There's an example in Genesis 37, verses 31 to 36, where Jacob is presented with a bloody garment, and his intellect says, that's my son's coat. He's dead. Since his intellect said he's dead, his feelings said, I agree. We should cry, and we should weep, and we should wail for our son. And you know what the will said? Let's do that. And so Jacob tore his garment. He fell to the earth. He put dust on his head, and his conscience said, I agree. Everything here is right. Let me ask you this. Was Joseph dead? It doesn't mean it's actually right. It just means your heart believes it's right. And if your heart believes it's right and acts on it, your conscience will say, okay. It's only when you go against your conscience that your conscience will bother you. It doesn't mean it's right. It just means everybody is in agreement inside, and so off we go. When we talk about pursuing peace and living at peace, this is a matter of your heart. Do not shortchange yourself and do not try to talk yourself out of it. It is not happenstance. It is not luck. It is not chance. We arrive at peace or we don't because of heart-made decisions, because of intellect and will and emotion and conscience. That's how we get there. And what the Bible is telling us is you need to do your max lift here. You need to run as hard as you can here, as much as lies within you. Do you want peace? That's the question. And what are you willing to do to arrive at peace? Four parts to the verse. First, the Apostle Paul says, if possible, which means it's conditional. The implication is this may not be possible. It doesn't mean that it's a 100% expectation. Rather, it's a conditioned possibility. There is a goal in mind, and if possible, we should reach it. That brings us to the second thing. How would we do that? He says, as much as lies in you. It's a personal action. It's not about the outcome per se. It is about the part you play in trying to achieve the outcome. Peace is the goal. What the verse is saying is, if it's not reached, make sure you're not the reason we didn't arrive at peace. Number three, he says, live at peace. That is the proper outcome, the goal, the end. The idea is to make peace, to cultivate peace, and then to live in peace. 
You create it, you grow it, and you live in it. That's the idea. With whom? Paul says, God says, with all men. Now, please understand as you read that, I hope you're doing with that what the Bible would have you do with it. But again, contextually, who would he be talking to? What would he be talking about? If we took Romans 12 and put it in the first century context, we would be talking about Jews and Gentiles. We would be talking about Jews who, as the woman at the well said, they have no dealings with the Gentiles, not the Samaritans. They have no dealings with us. We would be talking about Jews who for 1,500 years were God's chosen special people. And it was us and nobody else. We'd be talking about that group of people. And then we'd be talking about Gentiles, those that God gave up, gave up, gave over, Romans chapter 1. We'd be talking about both of them. The both groups that Paul said in chapter 3 all are under sin. Are we Jews better than they? No, and no wise. We before proved all are under sin. That's the groups we're talking about. We're talking about all mankind. Jews and Gentiles. Now we're talking about those individuals who came out of those different camps into the body of Christ, and now they are being told, as much as lies in you, live at peace with all men. Certainly it would include all within the body, but it would go beyond that. It would be just as it says, with all men. This is why the first three phases of the verse are so important. It's the case that it might not be reached. Paul says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. That is what we are supposed to do. Now, how do we do that? That's the nature of sanctification. When we consider verses in the Bible, we keep saying that context is the most important word in Bible study, and so it is. And it's also true here. I've had people come to me and they've read verse 18, they get in a situation with somebody and they say, this verse says as much lies in me, I did all I could do and that's it. Yeah, did you read the context? The context is a little broader than verse 18. Here's our outline. Point number one, never. Point number two, never. Point number three, if. Point number four, but. And point number five, do. Never, never, if, but do. What does that mean? Well, that's not a foreign language. That's the context. That's verse 17 down to verse 21. And it's those things that flank the verse that enable us to live the verse. There are negative and positive actions expressed in these verses. There are approved and condemned actions explained in these verses. And then there's personal responsibility expected in these verses. Ultimately, the responsibility is to God. And when we pursue peace, we must make sure God is the one that we're seeking to follow and Christ is the one we're seeking to emulate. In the past, where we have not maybe been trying to do this, we likely emphasize our efforts to the neglect of God. So we say things like, peace wasn't achieved, Somebody says, well, I tried. Peace wasn't achieved. Sometimes we defend and say, I didn't do anything wrong. Or I was patient. I was nice to them. I helped them. Can't believe they acted the way they did. I was so nice to them. I helped them. I did apologize. I begged them to forgive me. I was nothing but good to them. I don't know what more I could do. 
That's the way we generally talk. Let me ask you this. Did you ever hear God in any of that? It's our ticket out, actually. When we want to get out of trying, we just emphasize our efforts. Oftentimes, in the aftermath of contentions and fights and harsh language, it's amazing how well we remember ourselves behaving. The amazing thing is, so does the other person. They remember themselves behaving so well, and so do you. In fact, it makes you wonder, how did we have a problem when both of us behave so well? And yet, we have contentions and fights and feuds, and we're not getting along. This text emphasizes God. And if we're going to be and do what he says, then we have to keep him at the forefront of our minds as the goal and Christ as the one we're trying to emulate. Let's talk about how then. How do I do what's in verse 18? Let's begin at verse number 17. What does the Bible say? Paul says, never, in the pursuit of peace, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. The Apostle Paul is demanding, Scripture is demanding, God is demanding that as much as lies within you, never pay back evil for evil. That relies within you. You have the capacity in you to never do that. You have the capacity within you to respect what is right in the sight of all men. In fact, I might urge very quickly, I just didn't think of it this morning, but James says in James chapter 3, James chapter 1, let us be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. It might be the case that a violation of James 1 is why I might fail to do Romans 12, 17. The Bible says, never pay back evil for evil, but what if I'm already talking? What if I wasn't swift to hear? What if I was instead swift to speak and slow to hear? I might return evil for evil. Because I might have already done it the moment I heard it. Maybe you said something evil to me, and since I didn't do what James says, I've already violated what Paul says. Brethren, this is the nature of sanctification. It is about you and your life to God in how much of the New Testament? The New Testament. What James says is important. What Peter says is important. What Paul says is important. And they all put together harmonize. But if I'm violating James, I might also violate Peter. Never pay back evil for evil. That involves my words, my thoughts, and my deeds. That involves my heart. Never recompense. Who's our example? This is, again, very important to remember. In sanctification, in Christian living, in walking in newness of life, Christ is always the standard. Christ is always the goal. Christ is always the example. And if you and I aren't careful, what we'll do is we'll stop looking at Jesus and we'll start looking at each other. And we might tell ourselves, since you did it to me, guess what that allows me to do? That allows me to take my eyes off of Jesus, too. 
That allows me then to behave just like you. And you know what Paul is saying? That's exactly the point. Never do that. Why? Because if you fix your eyes on Christ and leave him there, you would read Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21, where Peter says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps, who did no wrong, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he was threatened, he threatened not. Who's the example? Jesus, in matters of what? Suffering. What do I need to do? I need to practice verse 18. How do I do that? I began with never returning evil for evil. No matter how much wrong is done to me, it will never amount to the wrong done to Christ. The writer of Hebrews in trying to comfort God's people in verse number 3 says, Consider him, Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. When should I consider Jesus? Exactly and precisely when I'm being done wrong. When I'm seeking peace, I should be like Jesus. It is the case that not even in his life could Jesus control the actions of others. In fact, in his passion, during that week and through all that he went through, everybody around him made decisions of the heart. Judas made a decision of his own heart. He decided that he would betray Jesus. Peter made a decision. He decided he denied Jesus. Pilate made a decision. I know he's innocent. I know for envy they delivered him. His wife said, have nothing to do with this righteous man, and yet I turn him over to you. Herod made a decision. The mob made decisions. Let me ask you this. Who else made a decision? In the midst of all the wrong being done to him, Jesus made decisions. In the garden, he said, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. When Peter tried to defend him, Jesus said, Peter, how shall the scripture be fulfilled? It must be so. On the cross, our Lord said, Father, forgive them. What happens when we take our minds off Jesus is we believe we lose the ability to make decisions. It's as if somehow that because you did me wrong, my behavior and thoughts become automatic. I have no more control of them. You hit me, I must hit you. You lied on me, I must speak evil back to you. You do me wrong, I must. It's as if we somehow have lost control. We don't have the ability to make choices. Jesus never lost it. Jesus continued to make choices. Never, never return evil for evil. Secondly, verse number 19 the Apostle Paul says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In the pursuit of peace, what should I do? I should trust God. Christ, our example, never took his own vengeance. He never vindicated himself, though he had every right. He never took on his own justice, though he had every right. What's Paul saying? Be like Jesus. Don't avenge yourself. To do your own vengeance, to execute your own vengeance, you'd have to ascend and get on the judgment seat. You'd have to go up the stairs, take God off of the bench, and you'd have to sit yourself on it before you could execute judgment. You'd have to dethrone God 
and enthrone yourself, which is why it is such an assault to God. And Paul says, never do that. Leave room for what? God. Leave room on the bench for God because vengeance is mine. It doesn't belong to you. You have no right to execute the judgment. God does that. In fact, it's best and it's proper that God be the judge. Genesis 18, 25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He is just that. He's the judge of all the earth, not you, not me. He will judge in righteousness, Romans chapter 2. Not always do we do that. He has the perfect balance of justice and mercy. He alone knows that balance and harmonizes it. In fact, he was injured first. David's not wrong when he says in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Far before you're done wrong, God has done wrong. And since God is the one who has done wrong first, you and I should let God do the judging. Would you like to be put into the hands of men to be your judge? David didn't. David didn't want that at all. After numbering the people, he was offered three punishments. One of them was to flee from his enemies. David said this to the prophet Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. 2 Samuel 24, 14. We should all be glad that vengeance belongs to God, and then none of us should take his job. What has God said? God said, I will repay. It's a matter of trust. If you trust that God will do it, then you don't avenge yourself. God is going to take care of it. It's a matter of faith. I believe God. In fact, God's past record is pretty good on this subject. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 2, the Bible says, Every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, a just penalty, a righteous judgment. Everyone, the Lord sees, the Lord hears, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He will take care of it. The question, do you believe that? Jesus did. Jesus didn't avenge himself. And so, neither should we. Sometimes people look at the state of the world and they say, I don't know what's going on. I just can't. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come. It will. He's going to take care of it. Leave room for him. If we return evil for evil, if we avenge ourselves, we have not done all that lies within us to achieve peace. Number three. Verse number 20, the Bible says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What's the exhortation? Be committed to God. Keep doing good. That's the exhortation. Who would be our example? Jesus. Jesus came to this earth for a particular purpose. The Bible will say in John 3, he didn't come to condemn. He came to, he didn't come to destroy, Matthew 5. He came to save. He came to submit to the Father and to show us the Father. Jesus will say, I do always those things that please him. I must finish his work. That's my meat. 
He came to minister, not to be ministered unto. So what happened to Jesus when all of the people did him wrong? He never lost sight of his mission. He never changed course. He never became something other than what he was, who he was, and what he was here to do. He just kept doing good. In fact, that's how Luke records Peter describing him, Acts 10, verse 35. He just went about doing good. He did good to his enemies. He fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000. He healed all their diseases. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and life to the dead. And even on the cross, Father, forgive them. It lies within us to keep doing good. In fact, it would take a new meeting inside of your heart to start doing evil. Somebody in that intellect would have to start processing information differently. And then once you process it, the, 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 the emotion would have to say, yeah, I'm in agreement with that. We should do evil. The conscience would have to come along and say, is that what we're doing? The will would have to agree. Everybody would have to be in harmony, except since you already know it's wrong, the conscience is not going to sign off on it. And it won't be long that after you do the evil, your conscience will be bothering you because you did that which you didn't believe was right. They went to arrest Jesus. Talk about continually doing good. They went to arrest him. Peter cut off a man's ear. And the Bible says Jesus healed the man's ear that was cut off. I tried to imagine the conversation when they got back to the armory. In my mind, it kind of goes something like this. They did get Jesus. They took him in. They got back. Somebody began to receive the weapons and process, and somebody said, hey, Julius, you know we went out to arrest Jesus, right? He said, yeah, I know. We got him. In fact, he's down the hall being processed. The council and witnesses are being brought in. Yeah, so... But listen, I need you to understand what happened out there. You see Malchus? Yeah, I see him. Look at the side of his head. What are you talking about, man? He's just got two ears. Yeah, he didn't a few minutes ago. No, there was blood everywhere. What? Did Jesus put up a fight? No. One of his disciples did. Before we knew it, he drew a sword, swung it at Malchus, cut off his right ear. What? Yeah. His ear came off his head. Man, you should have seen the blood. It was everywhere. Should have heard his screams, yelling, everybody in the garden. We were all there, shocked, stunned. But his ear looks fine. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus, the one we went to arrest, the one that all of the people are talking about. When his disciple cut off his ear, he healed him. And that's why you see two ears on the sides of his head now. Man, get out of here. Nobody, he touches it. Yeah. He kept doing good when we were there to arrest him. He rebuked his disciple, and then he came voluntarily. 
The next time somebody does you wrong, be like Jesus. Keep doing good. If we return evil for evil, if we avenge ourselves, if we stop doing good, just know you have not done all that lies within you. That's not your max lift. That's not your fastest run. That's not your fastest swim. That's not all that lies within you. In fact, number four, Paul said, do not, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do I practice verse 18? Never, never, but if do. Do not be overcome. It's not a suggestion. You want to live a sanctified life? If, is that your goal? You want to be holy as he is holy? That's your goal. Then it's not about coming to a building a couple times a week. Then it's not about randomly and occasionally reading the Bible a couple times a week. Then it's not about meeting the criteria, checking the boxes, dotting the I's and cross. No, it's about an entire transformation of my being to be like Jesus. That's sanctification. And if you have been trotting, you know, jogging down the road, if you've just been lifting light all of your time, if you've been in the kingdom, I'm just swimming casually, and friends, you're not doing it right. Jesus wasn't casual for you. Jesus didn't jog for you. He in that garden wailed for you. He did receive the lashings for you. They were not gentle. He did hang on the cross for you. And now he is telling you, follow me and be like me as much as lies within you. And now what Paul is saying is, do not, don't you dare be overcome by evil. Bible draws this line in the sand and arrays God over here and the Christ over here and the Spirit over here and the holy angels over here and then the faithful and redeemed of all the ages. And it turns and pivots and over here you have at best, I, I, I want to say team B, but that would be too close to A. So I'll say about X, R, Y, Z, somewhere down there. It's not close. There's the devil and the unholy angels, and then there's wicked people and all of that, and that's against this. And somehow, when God's people are not as we ought to be, we let them win. They take the lesser evil and overcome the greater good. These people, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. What do they have to offer? Deceit, lies, 
trickery, shenanigans, bright lights. We're better over here. But in the end, it's vacuous and empty and good for nothing, and we know that. So how would these children of God come into this world and allow that to win? Paul says, don't you ever be conquered. That's what the word means. To vanquish, to carry off in victory. And don't it seem like sometimes that's exactly what the goal is? Christian goes into a new work environment just as bright and sunny as the noonday sun. They're putting out their stuff on their desk. They're putting up stuff on their walls. There's scripture saying, there's scripture's words, and there's this and there's that. It's just bright and sunny in there. And it just seems like the evil in the world is just bent on making sure this becomes evil. We're going to do our best to turn off this light. At first, they'll bask in it. A Christian, that's great. We're so thankful. Oh, you're such a nice person. Always something good to say. Just so nice, so kind, so sweet. Give it a week, two, three. <laughs> Give it a month. Give it six. Give it the time when you have to make a Christian decision. Oh, no, I can't come with y'all after, after work for drinks. No, I can't. I can't do that. What? What you mean you don't? What you mean you don't? Oh, no, I don't do. Oh, that's how you are. It won't be long. They're doing their best to turn that light down and then ultimately off. And what Paul is saying is don't you let them do that. Don't you let them vanquish you and be victorious by turning you to evil. Instead, overcome by keep doing good. How do you do that? You remember James? Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to write. Apply that one. Take the take. But then take Paul in Philippians 4. Listen to what he says. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What does that mean? You probably can't keep drinking from the same dirty well they drink from. That means you probably can't keep eating from the same trough they're eating from. That means you have to keep living and eating the living bread. You have to keep drinking the living water. And you have to be of such a nature that you then put on the whole armor of God and then go on into the world. But you can't take your armor off, eat what they're eating, drink what they're drinking, and then hope to act like Jesus. Now, he never did that. It won't work, friends. We're talking about sanctification, talking about holy living. God is greater. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, unless you take off your armor, unless you eat what they eat, drink what they drink, think like they think, unless. In the pursuit of peace, Jesus never was overcome or overwhelmed by evil. He never let them conquer him. He just kept doing good. And friends, we need to do the same. Instead, overcome evil with good. Just here, let me say this. Please don't short yourself. One of the things that people say when they get under that max lift is, I can't, I can't, I can't. I really haven't seen people successful when they start with, I can't. Probably not going to push the max lift if you already tell yourself you can't, but I've seen a lot of people succeed when they say, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, and boom, the next thing you know, 
They got it. What are you telling yourself when it comes to the pursuit of peace? What are you saying to yourself? Are you already telling yourself, I can, I can seek peace, but not with that person? I can try, but not there. Mm-mm. I can try to be it, but not that. You know what happens in sanctification? It's because of the process of change and transformation, we get discomfort. And when we get uncomfortable, it fuels excuses. Once we become uncomfortable, we start telling ourselves, I can't. If discomfort makes not doing the right thing acceptable, then Christ should have stopped crying in the garden because he was very uncomfortable. We do the same thing physically. Why can't I do X? Fill in the blank. Because doing X is uncomfortable. In my mind, at any way, I think that uncomfortableness with regards to our physicality, I think the uncomfort is by design to test and to see whether or not we want to follow through. So it's, it's, it's our bodies and minds kind of way of giving us an out. I'm going to go and I'm going to start walking tomorrow. Now, I know I need to. I've been telling myself I need to. I'm going to start walking tomorrow. Tomorrow comes. I walk. This hurts. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to do this, do that. It hurts. I'm not doing it no more. How many times have you stopped in your life because of discomfort? I think it's our bodies and minds way of asking, are you serious? Do you mean it? We're going to give you a little bit of test to see if you mean it. And if you don't, then you'll stop and we'll go back to what we were doing, which was very comfortable and easy. But what happens when you push through? What happens when you make it to day two, day three, day five, day ten? Let me ask, does it get any easier? Does it get a little bit better? Do you have the nine days to tell yourself we succeeded ten, we're going to go on to eleven? Yes, no, maybe so. Anybody? Yes, it does work that way. Let me ask you this, does it work spiritually? I'm not going to pursue peace with you because I'm uncomfortable. I'm not going to try this because I'm uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to be swift to hear, so I'm not going to do that. It's uncomfortable for me to not talk back, so I'm just not going to do that. If you do that to your life spiritually, it'll have the same effect that it has on your life physically. You will inevitably stay where you are, and you will stay stuck in this space, and you cannot grow and move and develop, and certainly you can't be like Jesus. Our Lord had to be uncomfortable on that cross. And I think that's a very nice way of saying it. And yet he said, Father, forgive them. As much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. How do I do that? Never pay back evil for evil. Never take your own revenge, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know a great place to practice is right at the house. 
Is the house at peace? Everybody good at home? Is there peace in the valley? Because usually people start violating this right at home, and then it just spreads out outside the house. Fix it here, we can probably fix it everywhere. Not a Christian this morning, become one. Become like Jesus. Believe that he is the Son of God. John 8, 24 says he is, and he is. The works that he did says he is, and he is. His resurrection says that he is, and he is. And friends, he said, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. And where I am, you cannot come. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That belief needs to move you to change your mind. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about the good soil, the heart, those four parts. The gospel is that information needs to be processed, understood, and believed. The emotion needs to be moved by that good news. Thank God there's a way out. And the will and the conscience needs to be in harmony with obedience. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And they did it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. They that gladly received his word were baptized. Friends, you need to do that. If you are his child, let me ask you again. What's your max lift? What's your fastest run? You cannot jog, scripturalists, to grow yourself. As much as lies in you, live at peace with all men. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.